Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guests today are Jeff Wetzler, co-founder of Transcend Education, and Janae Henry-Wood, a partner at the US-based nonprofit. Transcend works with schools to figure out what they want to change and then helps them to do it. I met Jeff through a personal friend and when he first described their work to me, what stuck with me most was the necessity of R&D in schools and the almost total absence of it. One of the very features of the design that they were in is it's just such a grind. We're trying to squeeze every drop out of the industrial model of schooling. There's no time to step back and think and reimagine. And so that also pushed me to think there needs to be some kind of entity that supports innovation, that supports design, that doesn't just put all the burden on people who are already overburdened. When I dug a bit deeper, I learned about Transcend's leaps, which we talk about here, which are some of their guiding principles as to how to shift schools from an industrial model of mass production, which sorts and ranks, to one whose purpose and design point towards equity and thriving. Leaps include things like moving from isolation to connection and community, from passive compliance to active self-direction, and from assimilation and marginalization to affirmation of self and others. When schools are given space to work with their community to figure out their purpose, a lot can change. As Janae says, when your purpose is different, your means and your methods change accordingly. We talk a lot about the work they're doing to elevate student experience and student voice and why it's so different from what's being done elsewhere. We also talk about the power of listening, what special ed can teach us about how to help every student thrive, and the very counterintuitive clues one should look for in a quote unquote, good school. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Jeff and Janae, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm so excited for this conversation. We've spoken before, and I'm thrilled to have listeners get to know you and the work that you do. We've told them a little bit about Transcend, but Jeff, I want you to start by telling us your Transcend story. How did this come to be? So my co-founder, Elon Samoa, and I launched Transcend in 2015. We had worked together in prior lives and always loved working together. Then each of us, I think, had several motivations for wanting to start an organization that really focused on reimagining what schooling could be. Just speaking for myself, a lot of it came down to my own two kids. I have two kids of my own. They go to our local public school here. They are now in eighth grade and 10th grade, but they were much younger when we started Transcend. As a parent, being so close up to the education of your kids, you see a lot. And one of the things that I started to observe was how eerily similar their experiences of school were to what I went through decades earlier, despite how radically different the world is. And when you're a parent, you can see really the potential that your kids have, whether that's emotional potential or character or intellectual potential. And I could just start to see how much of my kids potential intellect, you know, character, et cetera, was just not being developed and engaged at school in nearly the ways that I knew that it could be. And I knew that my kids don't have more potential or capacity than other kids. And so when I thought about what that means for all kids, it was heartbreaking. And it really fueled my urgency to say, why are we not changing the design of school the same way that everything else in society is getting revised and redesigned as the times change? So that for me, that was one entry point. A second entry point was I spent a decade working at Teach for America, most of that time focused on training and supporting thousands of teachers all across the country. That's actually where I met Janae as well, who was one of the most amazing teachers at Teach for America. And just to let you know, Janae is giving Jeff a big X. 
stop. She apparently doesn't like the kudos. She is oh, very God. modest, but she she was an extraordinary special ed teacher. Every year we would try to make the training better and the support better on various topics, whether that had to do with lesson planning or classroom management, a number of things. And every year we saw incrementally better practice on the part of the teachers, but we never saw the transformational gains that we knew were possible, both with the young people that our teachers were working with and with the teachers themselves. And after a while, I just thought, you know, maybe there's something more than just training that we need here. Um, maybe we actually need to look at what is the role that the teachers are in. Um, and when you look closely at the role of a teacher, it's just so clear how difficult that role is. We're asking teachers to meet students where they are, and there's differences on such a wide range of dimensions. And to serve all of those students all at once, it would be as if we were saying to a doctor, for example, you should be the general practitioner and the nurse and the surgeon and invent the drugs and sweep the floors and be the receptionist and see 30 patients at the same time. And we'll try to get doctors better by training them better. You know, it would be a ridiculous proposition. And yet that's what we do with teachers. And when you start to pull on the thread of why are teachers roles designed that way, you have to quickly ask why are classrooms designed that way? And you have to very quickly then ask why are schools designed that way? And so part of me had a desire to get to a deeper root cause of educator practice than just what's the training that we're giving them. And then I'll just say, lastly, I was involved in starting a bunch of schools in New York as a board member that were in the category of what some might call high-performing charter schools. And we were getting amazing academic results on state tests. And everyone was very proud of that. But uh, as I started to look around the board, I realized none of us as board members were sending our kids to the schools that we were governing, nor even schools that functioned the way that the schools that we were governing operated. That felt to me unacceptable. And when I started to look at you know, what was really going on, it was really about the design of the situation. Our schools were designed to optimize basically for one thing, and they were doing a very good job doing that, but it was coming at the expense of other things that we as board members valued, leadership, agency, identity affirmation, sense of community, holistic development, et cetera. And I thought to myself, well, if we're designing for one situation, we could design for a different situation. We could optimize these other things too. It's a design problem. And when I tried to push on that as a board member, I quickly realized the schools don't have time for this. I mean, one of the very features of the design that they were in is this just such a grind. We're trying to squeeze every drop out of the industrial model of schooling. There's no time to step back and think and reimagine. And so that also pushed me to think there needs to be some kind of entity that supports innovation, that supports design, that doesn't just put all the burden on people who are already overburdened. And so when Elon and I were looking around the field and talking about this and thinking about this, we didn't see any kind of source of partnership or what we would look at as R&D for school design. And it felt like the field might need something like that. When you and I first spoke, that concept of outsourced R&D really resonated with me. I know it's not completely outsourced, it's community-led and everything, but it just felt like something that when you said it, I could see how absent it was and how much need there might be for it. Janae, I'd love to hear your story. It's quite different from how you came to Transcend. It is. So I, uh, I have kind of two angles here. One's personal, one's professional, and they intersect. So I started my career as a special education teacher in my hometown of Atlanta. And at the same time that I was a special education teacher, my younger brother was also being evaluated for special education services. And so I sort of had an eye on both realities. One was being a family um, that was experiencing a system, and one was being a teacher. 
who in many ways played a role in helping to execute it. And the wonderful thing about special education, just to give a couple of markers around it, I both taught in an inclusion setting, so I taught next to a general education teacher. I also taught in a resource setting, so I would, you know, take young people out of a classroom setting to teach content, and I also taught in a self-contained setting. So that was a classroom for students who couldn't be in the general education classroom for various reasons. So I taught in all three of those settings. And I came to realize both in the role and in seeing the ways in which my private life were sort of intersecting, the special education has so many of the ingredients of what we actually want to be true for all young people. So the crux of that role uh, for me was sitting down with families and sitting down with young people and asking things like, what are your goals? What do you want to learn how to do? Who do you want to be? And so I worked with one student, her name's Casey, and the notes that I got on her when I first started teaching her were things like, you know, never going to be able to read functions at around a kindergarten level. I was a middle school teacher, seventh grade. But when you actually sat down with Casey and really asked her, what do you want to be able to do? What matters to you? What's important? She shared a couple of things with me that were kind of a light bulb moment. One is she said, I want to have friends. I want to be able to come to school and I want to have friends. And right now when I'm at school, I think that people are making fun of me. I don't think that people really want to be friends with me. That was one thing that really shocked me. The second thing she said is she said, I love to hear my mom read to me. I actually love reading, but I really don't like doing it in the classroom in front of everyone because I feel like people are making fun of me. I stumble with my words. And so when we went to her individualized education plan meeting, the IEP meeting, we had both her mother, Casey's mother, and her there. And so what we were able to do with that information, with that knowledge, is to think very differently about how I spent my time with KC in our resource uh, setting, and then how I actually spent my time with her family as their teacher, as their advocate, outside of a school setting. And so what we came to was we sort of flipped the ways in which KC experienced school. We spent a lot of time in our classroom setting working on communication skills, working on skills around play working on how do you connect with other young people? What are things that you like? What are things that you can, you know, talk about? I had other students volunteer some of their time to come in and lunch and have lunch with her. And then we did a lot of work actually in her home setting on reading, setting her family up to read with her, setting her up with a tape recorder at home so that she could read into that and practice before she had to get in a classroom setting. So that's just one example. But it, it was a real light bulb moment when I realized that so many of the ingredients of what we want to be true for school, for young people, really deeply thinking about who they are, asking them what they want, what their aspirations are, sitting with their families and saying, what's the important role that you can play? It struck me that that was a very important part of schooling and what school needed to be. Now, on the personal side, my brother was also navigating this process and navigating it in a very different context. So like most places in the world, our educational system very much so segregated. We have schools that are primarily, you know, for, you know, young people, marginalized people of color who are also poor. We have schools that are generally speaking for affluent people and those experiences can be very different, but there are lots of things that are also the same about them. What was very different about them in me sort of watching this was the ways in which the system set up and engaged with my family 
very different than the ways in which the system was set up and intended to engage with the young people that I taught. The expectation was that my family would come with an army of resources, a doctor, a psychiatrist, an OT specialist, a physical therapist, all of these people that could vouch for my brother and vouch for what he could do. But when I thought about KC and I thought about her family, that was never the expectation. And that certainly wasn't the context in the system in which I was sort of brought up to be a teacher. It was the IEP meeting is kind of a formality, fill it out, write down what you think they need to do, send it to them, and hopefully the parent signs it. That isn't at all the ways in which I think my supervisor, who really understood the power of this space, that wasn't the way that we approached it. And so I was really lucky to be with one person who thought very differently about the ways in which this space could function. And so I saw those two worlds really playing out. I was pretty inspired by Teach for America and Jeff's team. And so I joined staff at Teach for America and then thought exactly about many and saw much of the work uh, that Jeff was doing and focused a lot in thinking about how do we train, prepare, support teachers. And some of the work that I did, we really studied some of our most successful classrooms, so classrooms that were making really big gains. And the thing that I noticed about those classrooms was that they were often embedded within schools that also thought differently about learning and young people. And those schools were embedded within districts that had, you know, a professed and explicit desire for schooling to be more. And so my next aha was, oh, that's right. Teachers are not just these individual islands on their own. They're embedded within schools. Schools are embedded within communities. All of these things integrate and influence one another. And so when I really thought about where I wanted to be taking some of those uh, the things that I'd learned about being a special educator, I thought, well, who's doing that work? Okay, I would probably trust Jeff Wetzler if he told me it's time to jump off this bridge and you know wear clown shoes. I'd probably trust him if he said it. Ask a couple questions, but I generally trust him. And they seem to be doing the work that is really thinking about the, the context, the community, and sort of a, a broader entity in which we train, support, and develop teachers. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of thinking at that unit of change. And before we get into some of the examples of how that works, I want to just have you all talk very briefly about a couple of the leaps. You have these leaps that we need to make. It's a framework to get our heads around kind of what this transformation could look like. Maybe you could each pick one and talk about it. I think it's worth saying first that the leaps are grounded in articulating a difference between an industrial model of school and what we're calling you know, an equitable 21st century learning design. And the, the very most important thing to start with is what is the purpose of school in those two different models? In the industrial model, the purpose of school was to mass educate a lot of kids. And it did that very well. It got lots, lots more kids going through school than ever before. It was also designed to sort and rank and separate. And so it functioned, quote, you know, well, according to its design. It really wasn't designed to advance equity. It wasn't designed to unleash the full potential of every young person. That's the purpose that we think school should be now. And so when we describe these leaps, I think it's it's important to talk about how they're anchored in two very different purposes of what schooling could be. I'll just pick one of my favorite leaps, which is the leap between passive compliance and active self-direction. And so the passive compliance, basically, I think would be very familiar to most young people in mainstream schools, at least in this country, which is that they are pretty much told where to go where to be, when they can get up from their desk, often it's when a bell rings, they are being told answers to questions that they never asked or expressed in any interest in learning. 
and basically told follow the rules and it's not that pleasant but kids get very good at complying and if they don't they, they get in trouble that is in contrast to what we would call active self-direction which is really about kids taking charge of their own learning what are the questions that they're curious about what are the ways in which they want to go find out the answers to those questions do they want to ask for help do they want to go watch a video do they want to read a book do they want to do a project what are the ways in which they want to demonstrate that they know and from my perspective, active self-direction matters so much because the moment that kids leave school at formal schooling, no one's there to feed them the answers. No one's there to give them the knowledge that they might need. And so having practice at actually self-directing their learning, I think is one of the most important things they're going to need to do because um, we know how fast the world is changing. We know that jobs are going to continue changing. We know that young people and adults as they move into their careers are going to need to keep reinventing themselves over and over again to stay relevant and to not be replaced by machines and so on. That means learning. And so if you're not actually practiced at self-directing your learning when no one else is giving it to you, you're going to be in trouble. Just to interject here, Jeff absolutely does love active self-direction. And I know that because you also show that so much in your management and leadership of people. And so it's just another great example how these leaps apply not just to school, but they apply to other contexts as well. Jeff is always pushing me to be actively self-directed. All coming together right here on the podcast. <laughs> it's all coming together. Podcast is like team therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Janae, what's your favorite leap? So I would say the move from isolation to connection and community is, is one of my favorites. So when we think about school, we often have a teacher and young people, and they're in the same room, you know, and they're together. But often we don't really deeply put a premium on how well do teachers and young people deeply know each other? How well do the young people in the classroom know each other? How well are the lines of connectivity and relationships between home and school? We often think of things as just very isolated. We know, and I think the research has told us over and over and over and over again, that relationships deeply matter for young people. It matters for them to feel both physically safe, emotionally and mentally say to take the kinds of risks that Jeff is talking about in that active self-direction. When you are kind of going it on your own, there's real risk that goes into that. You want to take a jump or a big leap into trying something hard, into trying something new. And when you feel that you've got a community, when you feel a deep sense of belonging and connection to your peers, connection to your teacher, that people believe you can do it, we see a tremendous, tremendous difference in how young people are able to show up both in school and in all different kinds of learning environments. One of my favorite pieces of data when I was at Teach for America and we were analyzing teachers and we uh, basically had them do this very long questionnaire and we said, okay, how many hours do you spend planning? How many hours do you spend working with other people? How many hours do you spend reading up on all of the latest pedagogical techniques? We asked them a whole bunch of questions. And then we asked them this question that said in, you know, in your class, Classroom, to what extent are the young people that you teach, young people that you would want people in your life to know? And then what we did was we analyzed that data and we were looking for a relationship. We were basically trying to see, is there a relationship between how long a teacher plans and the outcomes they're getting with young people? Is there a relationship between, you know, how many hours of reading they do and the outcomes from young people? And the one thing, the one relationship, we can't say it's causal, but the one relationship that we were able to see very strongly was the answer to this question. The students in this classroom are students that I would want my own children to know. That was the strongest correlation to outcomes in that teacher's classroom. 
I think that that is a profound um, piece of information to think about. And that I think has really shown me the power of connection and the deep power of relationships. Tell us what this work looks like. What was the catalyst for connecting? What was the goal? What was the outcome? I'll share a story about a community in rural North Carolina, a district called Edgecombe County, North Carolina, led by a phenomenal superintendent, Dr. Valerie Bridges, and an amazing team of people, school leaders and district leaders and and educators there. We started working with them probably six years ago now, when Dr. Bridges and Danielle Cannon and Aaron Swanson and others came together to basically say, what do we want the future of learning to be in our rural community? And like all rural communities, they were contending with trends of you know, where are the jobs going and are people going to stay in our community? All the same questions that every rural community is dealing with. And, and we're working with a lot of rural communities across the country. So it's interesting to see the commonalities. And they said, we need to we need to ask ourselves, what kind of graduate do we need to be producing? And that was the starting point. What do our graduates need to know? What are the dispositions we want them to have? Active self-direction was a big part of their thinking. We spent a lot of time actually as part of our journey, looking at what are the big trends in the world. One of their beliefs and one of Transcend's beliefs is that this design work is not the kind of thing that just a small number of people in power can kind of go decide on behalf of a community. It was really important to them to be involving kids in the process, to be involving educators in the process, to be involving families in the process. So they did a lot of listening. They did a lot of group design sessions, and they ultimately came up with a very different design, one that really did put kids in charge of their learning, one that really did emphasize community And they said to themselves, you know, in the spirit of like, we're not going to take power from the community. This is very different. Do we want people to opt into this or not? Let's let's start with a micro school, a school inside of a school and see who wants to come. And so in the very first year, it was a a smaller group of kids who came. I think they had something like 50 kids who, who opted in. And they started to see very interesting things happen in terms of students who might have otherwise been disengaged really, really focusing more, engaging more deeply in schools, teachers having, you know, different kinds of relationships that they were able to build with students. And over the years, it just continued to grow. And it wasn't just like set it in motion and the snowball goes. They were very deliberate about what are we trying this year? You know, which parts of our model are we testing? Some things didn't work. Some things they found we actually needed to, you know, go back to certain parts of what we were doing, like, for example, with math, but other things worked really well. And that's, that is the kind of organic, messy nature of the process. So you had earlier said, Jeff, that the purpose is fundamentally different. And one of the things I love about Edgecombe is that they've articulated a set of outcomes and a guiding purpose that is distinct from many, many, many schools that I've been in and and worked with. They said, by the time students are 25 years old, so by the time they leave our district, generally students are graduating 18, 19, here is what they are able to say. I possess global awareness and agency. I can return to or stay in Edgecombe County. I engage productively in my community. I know my purpose, what I'm passionate about, and I'm living that out. I'm resilient in the face of challenges. And so I think that there is something profound about two aspects of that. One is that they set their outcome. They set where the actual yardstick was, not just at 18 when young people are walking across the stage and getting their diploma and they're like, well, job done, graduation rate, you know, that's our goal. They said, no, no, we care about who young people are even out to 25 years old. And here are the kinds of things that we want for them to be able to say. 
when you are backwards sort of planning and backwards mapping and building a school, building a learning environment, where you want for people to say even seven years in the future, I'm resilient, I know my purpose, I can return to my home. I think that that fundamentally shapes the kinds of experiences that you are crafting, the kinds of conversations that you are trying to have with young people. Because when your purpose is different, your means, your methods uh, are also different. So what are some of the challenges they encountered? I know you said that there was community buy-in, but I imagine that this very different model must have met with some resistance. I will say that it's it's easier to avoid resistance when you make it opt-in and not everybody who does innovation makes things opt-in. Sometimes innovation is like everybody in the school is going to do this type of thing. So I think they were they were super smart and super pragmatic in doing it. I think some of the biggest challenges, as I understand it, were it is a different mindset in terms of how to engage with kids. When you're used to being the one in charge and when you're used to telling kids what to do and when you're used to kids following a preset curriculum, particularly when we've all grown up with that, it's natural, it's comfortable, it feels like the right thing to do. And so they were very intentional about teacher development and teacher preparation and saying, wait a minute, this actually like flips everything on its head. This is now like the kid is driving. We see this in Educom and we see this in lots of different places. The adult unlearning of what school needs to be is so important. And adults keeping each other vigilant about that is so important. There is, of course, you know, just all the messiness of change management. And there's unlearning for kids too, because kids are, you know, like what's going on as well. But it's a lot easier when kids can opt into it and and everyone knows we're on this journey together. It's going to be messy. Things don't always work. So Janae, tell me what it looks like. Take me into the classroom. Yeah. So what you might normally see is you walk in and there is a teacher in the front and they are saying, here is what you learned. If you were to walk in a classroom at North Phillips, you're going to see children grouped together and you're going to see a lot of movement. This is something that I just cannot understate how much we want to control young people's bodies in classrooms. And when I have seen learning in this environment, I'm always astounded by one, the noise and how children are talking. And then two, the movement. There are young people zipping around to this group who's working on this thing, to this person who has this other thing that I need. And so really what you have are young people, I think, working in small collaborative groups who are working deeply in teamwork. Two is you have young people pursuing a question or pursuing a project together. So they're actually co-developing an answer. You have a teacher who is walking around and doing what I think is really deeply facilitated learning. So instead of the teacher saying, I know all of the answers, here it is, copy it down. You have a teacher sort of walking in, circulating amongst saying, where are you on this task? Great, are you having issues? Here's a question to reset you. And so I think that that setup of the classroom, both in what it looks like and what it feels like, in the ways in which teachers are reorienting their engagement with young people, the ways in which young people are now reoriented, they're not these passive, you know, sort of uh, receptive vehicles for learning, but they're actually active and moving about and talking about it, makes a huge difference in what that classroom both feels like, but also in some of the results that they're going for. If you want for young people to be resilient in the face of challenge, you can't have a, a teacher up in the classroom telling them, here's the answer, it's A, move on. You've got to have young people wrestling with that. If you want for people to feel like I can stay in Edgecombe County and build a life here, they need to have relationships with each other. They need to be working deeply with each other. So that collaborative space, I think, contributes to that a lot. Everything Janae said, but just like a sense of community, a sense that we're in this together, a sense of caring about each other, a sense that I belong here. And you'd see rituals where, where students are sharing honestly and vulnerably with one another and with educators about, about what's going on for them in their lives and what they care about. 
One of the tools that they used, if I'm correct, was empathy mapping. Actually, in Donnell's case, he shadowed a student and was struck by how boring and frustrating and controlling the school day was, which I think really informed the practice. You know, principal shadowing a student. Talk about a changing power dynamic. Is that something you recommend that people do? Did they come up with that on their own? It's a core part of the process. Some people call it empathy. There's a there's some controversy now as to whether empathy is the right word to call it because that can sound like you're sort of you're still designing for somebody else that you have empathy for as opposed to co-design, which I think is maybe even a better way to look at it. But it's all about deeply understanding the experiences that are being designed. And so that can happen through deep listening. Even just sitting down with a student for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and just asking a few small open-ended questions to understand their experience. I can't tell you the number of times, I mean, we work with schools all across the country and educators say to us, I have never actually just sat down for 20 or 30 minutes with one student and just asked them about their experience. And what, what I heard about how boring it is or how hard it is or how sad they feel or how isolated they feel, I cannot unhear that. I mean, it's so simple, just listening to the people that this is all about and taking it in. I love this point that you're bringing out, Jeff, about not being able to unhear things. You learned so many things when you were training to be a teacher, you know, so, so, so many things. It's amazing how this skill of listening is one of the things that is not front and center. You learn how to talk, you learn how to get respect from young people, you learn how to set up a class, you learn rituals, you learn routines, but no one is saying, sit down and actually listen to young people. It's an incredibly powerful skill to have, but also I think it fundamentally shifts how we um, as adults relate to young people and how we understand our real purpose um, in their lives. And so I couldn't agree more, Jeff, that once you hear it, you can't unhear it. I think that there is an assumption in many fields, including education, that like, why would we listen to kids? Like, they're not the experts. They don't know the science of learning. They don't know the pedagogy. They don't know the content that they're teaching. Just the same way, like we wouldn't go ask a patient, you know, do you want to get a shot? Do you not want to get a shot? Like the expertise lies somewhere else beyond the students. And I think what gets overlooked is that, that if nothing else, the students are expert in one thing, which is that they are the experts in the experience that they're having. Like they know the experience that they're having better than anybody else can possibly know it. And for whatever reason, I don't think education puts enough attention in respecting that expertise or leveraging that expertise to inform design. And we're absolutely going to get to exactly what you're doing with that information in that giant hole in about two seconds. But I want to wrap up Edgecombe with two points. What happened to the academic outcomes? And I know we have one of the leads is whole child focus, but I think any educator listening here is going to be like, that all sounds lovely. But what if the academics go off the rails? So what happened to their academics? And very briefly, did they scale that micro school? So the academics went up in, I think, three out of the four subject areas, and we can put the details in the show notes, but they did start to see better academics across the board. They also saw better attendance, better engagement, et cetera. And the size of North Phillips grew. So every year, subsequently, more and more students have been enrolling in North Phillips. So I think that's also a sign. And it's also worth mentioning that in COVID, when lots of students had to start learning from home and had to start learning in ways that didn't have a teacher standing over them and saw all kinds of terrible academic slides as a result of lack of engagement, the students in North Phillips had a much less abrupt hit from that because they knew how to guide their learning. They were not dependent on a teacher. And so not only did academics go up in the near term, but I think it, we started to see that it built some of the resilience that's required when things get thrown off and you don't just have people standing in front of you giving you the answers. And to me, that's as important as any kind of near-term testing games. What the folks in Edgecombe did that I thought was so smart was they didn't say, 
let's now take the the North Phillips design and just make every school in Edgecombe like North Phillips. Rather, what they said is, let's take the process that we used to start to develop North Phillips and replicate that process throughout our district so that different communities can also have the same chance to ask questions about what they want. And undoubtedly, some of the dimensions and model components of North Phillips would, would replicate. But I think what they realized is that this exercise of doing design and community engaged design is not just about the answer of like, here's the right design. It's about the process which builds a set of conditions in a community because you have to have conviction for we want this design. You have to have a coalition of lots of different people want it. And so they have been running this process and developing various other innovations and learning environments by listening to young people, by bringing everyone together at the table, by thinking boldly about what we want, where's the future going. Student voice is important. Nobody's listening to it. Nobody really cares about it. So what are you going to do about it? I'm really excited about this. There are kind of two things that we are aiming to do. So the one is we love data. So we built a survey, but we didn't just build a survey. We also built the, the whole concept around this is, you know, this has been a really, really, really hard time in schools in the States. Right now, my husband texts me, he works in schools. He's like, well, I'm subbing for AP physics today because the teacher's out. The teacher's quarantining, the teacher is sick. One student got sick, the whole school bus is quarantined. So this is a really, really, really tricky year. And I think that, you know, schools could say, you know what, let's just pack up our toys and like leave because we've got another wasted school year down the drain. But that's actually not what we're seeing in many of the most innovative communities. What we're actually seeing is people say, you know what, this is a moment after the incredibly hard year that we had in the spring of 2020 in the full academic year where it's time for a reset and we need to rethink the ways in which this school needs to function and what it needs to look like. And you know what, we need to ask young people, as we've said, who experience this learning environment. And so we really wanted to meet that desire and meet that moment. And so two things that come out of our focus on deep listening have come from this. So one is a survey that we worked internally and with experts to validate and, and create, where we just ask young people questions on a one to five point scale. So an example of that. We asked young folks in school, you know, people don't give up when the work gets hard. Do you agree with that? You strongly agree with that? Or do you strongly disagree with that? Or we asked them things like, at my school, I get to learn things I'm interested in. That gives administrators, that gives teachers, that gives parents some really powerful information about the ways in which school is both working for young people, not working for young people. And with that information, you can now ask yourself questions about what might our day need to look like? Kids are telling us that they are not feeling a deep sense of belonging. Well, you know what? We can change that. We have lunch that we can use. We have morning meeting that we can use. We have a lot of different strategic levers in a school day that we could use. What could it look like if we rethought those moments in the school day, placing a deep emphasis on young people feeling belonging and feeling seen and feeling known? And so we developed the survey right now. I think in the pilot, we've got about 50,000 students and upwards climbing who are going to take this so that we can also learn some trends about student experiences. What kinds of leaps are schools making? Are schools really leaping in this moment and making a deep whole child leap in focus? Are schools uh, further behind, you know, in terms of relevance that students are feeling? And so for each of those 10 leaps that we mentioned, we've got questions that align to each of those to try to get at the core of student experiences. So that's one is the survey. 
Now, if people aren't taking the survey, the next thing that we developed is a shorter version of that that is a conversation guide. You can glean a lot, of course, from surveys, but you can also glean a lot from having open-ended conversations with young people. So there are many of the same questions that you can sit and ask and strike up a conversation. Hopefully that's maybe a 20 minute, if you're lucky, maybe longer with one student or a group of, of young people, and you can deeply ask them follow up. And so some of those questions are things like, you know, how do you spend your time learning outside and inside the school building? What does that look like? How much do you feel that you can choose the work that you do or not? Questions like that. And so a teacher, an administrator can really glean a lot by having these conversations. Yeah. I mean, I think at least in this country, there's a lot of attention focused on kind of what is school quality as it's defined by test scores and graduation rates. And we think that that's good and important, but it's incomplete. And in particular, test scores and graduation rates, we think are lagging indicators. It's hard to do something about it, you know, once it's over. But even more important, it's only a really a very partial look into what we think this expanded purpose of school needs to be. If the purpose of school is to really help every young person unlock their potential, as Janae said, to thrive, not just when you graduate, but 10 years out, you can't just be looking at test scores. And what we've seen is that experiences themselves can be such an important window into whether schools are making the leaps that need to be made for equitable 21st century learning. So my hope is that this also adds to, and maybe in some ways challenges the conception of what a quality school can be. Um, I know, for example, in my own experience, my kids go to public schools that would do well on the traditional conceptions of what quality would be, test scores, graduation rates, college growing rates, et cetera. But when we ask them the questions on this survey and have conversations with them, it's pretty clear, like they're not really driving their learning in the ways that they could be. They don't feel a sense of connection. The level of relevance of what they're learning is not there. And there's a real tension between the experiences that they're having and what conventional measures of quality would be telling us. And so my hope is to highlight that tension and maybe also that that tension will create some dissonance that can be part of a provocation to support people in communities who do want to ask these questions to say, you know what, it's not just about like we checked the box because we got a good test score, but we actually need to be looking at experience as well. Is this COVID moment going to transform schools or are we going to go back to normal? Disagree one, agree five. We have never been at a profound moment like this where we have one foot in the past and one foot in the present, where we're able to look and see where could we go if we thought profoundly different? And that's what COVID gave us. That's the gift. It gave us the opportunity to say, when all things are taken away, if you could rethink the way that you structure schools, that you structure the experience, that young people learn and convene together, what could it look like? I'm at like a 4.5 in my hope on this. We've never been better positioned to fundamentally transform so that schools can be working for more people if we take this opportunity to deeply ground in their experience and their voices, and we take this moment profoundly seriously as an opportunity to do just that. If we are going to kind of snap back, acquiesce, and say, how do we get back to normal as fast and as soon as possible, where there's no quarantining and everything is clear and safe and predictable and kids are getting in and getting out and we're done, if we actually allow that to overshadow us, we are not going to make a transformation that we can. But if we say we've got one foot in the future, one foot in the past, we know what the past is, and we look forward, I actually think we have never been better positioned, probably especially in this country, ever, to make the kind of profound transformations that we need to make for young people. 
I'm going to end it on that optimistic note because there's so little optimism right now that we got to just stop. Got it. Good. Close. End of story. But I have to ask you guys three rapid fire questions. What is your favorite book about learning? I'm going to start with you, Jeff. There's a book called The Education of Little Tree, and it taps into indigenous wisdom about the learning process. And I still think about it. It has really pushed my thinking both as a parent and as a leader in education. I'll go in a slightly different direction uh, with a book that's actually about organizational theory and design, but there's a lot about learning. It's called Reinventing Organizations. I think in 25, 30 years, when we look back at some of the best books written, this is going to be number one, because it really helps understand how human organizations have developed over time. And it has profound, I think, implications for schools. And now I'm starting with you, Janae. What's your favorite book now? about learning? Oh my God. I don't even know if I read anything that is not about learning. <laughs> like, like, like truly. Okay. I will choose a novel, East of Eden uh, by Steinbeck, I think is one of the most beautiful American novels I've ever read. So East of Eden, Steinbeck. Love it. Jeff? Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And final question. What are you binge watching? Both of you. Ted Lasso. Oh my God. I'm binge watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm on season five. <laughs> so good though. <laughs> All right. Those are excellent options. Thank you both for being with us and good luck with your work. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you so much for having us. A lot of parents are lulled into thinking a school is good if it does a few things. It graduates lots of kids, gets them into good colleges, produces good test scores. It feels good when you walk around and students look well behaved and ask diligent on task questions about whatever it is they're meant to be mastering and learning. But what if the mark of a good school is one that's a bit loud and unruly because students are busy moving around a classroom and working with each other and making their own decisions and potentially veering off course for a while? And rather than just producing good scores, that school produced kids who knew who they were and some of the ways they wanted to direct their energy and their intellect. If you want those outcomes, you better be ready to unlearn and transform a lot of how teaching and learning happens. I really admire the way Transcend works with communities to help them listen to each other and decide what's important to them, and then design for that. Critics may say this sounds loosey-goosey, but it's everything but. All schools have to meet academic standards, but that's not enough. Engaging students, exciting them, getting them to work at their resilience and their agency, that's also important. And shuffling through a day when we tell them what to learn and how to do it and controlling their bodies and their curiosity, we lose something when we do that. I also really love Janae's comments that it's amazing how little we prioritize the skill of listening. Teachers learn how to talk, how to get respect from young people, how to set up a class, but they don't get a lot of training on listening. Looking around the world right now, it feels like that's something we could all use some help with. Thanks for listening. No pun intended. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.